Good morning. morning. Y'all awake after having to be up an hour earlier than usual? Me neither. I heard a nope. (laughs) Well, my name is Ben. I serve as one of of the pastors here at uh, Common Ground. And I want you to think of the most secure place in the world. What, What comes to mind? Perhaps Fort Knox in Kentucky where the U.S. keeps its gold reserves. Or maybe the White House, the Vatican Archives, Area 51. (laughs) I knew I'd get a chuckle on that one. Each of these has multiple layers of security barriers and restrictions because they contain something or someone valuable, information that is known to only a select few. I also think of the elephant's foot in the basement of Chernobyl a radioactive mass from the reactor meltdown almost 40 years ago that is lethal if you are in its presence for more than 90 seconds. So it is incredibly restricted. We put up barriers to conceal, but also to protect others. Parents do this as well. We keep children out of our our bedroom closets because that's where we keep their birthday and Christmas presents before they're at. But your closet might also be where you keep important documents and maybe firearms. So even though you lock your stuff in a safe, right? Right? Okay, good. You still restrict their access even to the room. We experience barriers everywhere all the time. It's it's part of what it means to be a human. The most significant of these began when sin entered the story and a barrier, a separation, was formed between God and man. But did you know that it didn't start that way? In Genesis 3, we learn that God would walk through the garden in the cool of the day, meaning Adam and Eve had direct access to God. Not a shadow of God, not just a glance or, the ba- or his back, but the real and full presence of the Almighty. This was humanity's norm, not the exception. Complete, unrestricted access. Ponder what that might have been like for just a moment. It's important we grasp the enormity of this in order to to realize how terrible and consequential sin really is. Immediately after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, barriers went up separating them from God and from each other. They experienced guilt and shame and tried to cover their nakedness, something that hadn't been a barrier before. Then they hid from God. Man, we could spend a month of Sundays just on that sentence. God didn't remove himself from their presence. They tried to remove themselves from his. Then the blaming started. God, says Adam, it's your fault I sinned because this woman you gave to be with me offered me the fruit to eat. It's not my fault. God, says Eve, it's the serpent's fault. He tricked me. I can't be culpable. Want to know the key to a healthy marriage? Don't look at Adam and Eve. Shame, guilt, blaming, fighting for control. Again, we could talk endlessly about the relational and spiritual barriers that occurred in Genesis 3 as a direct result of sin, but we also see a physical barrier. 
When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, God put a cherubim angel armed with flaming sword to physically bar access to the tree of life. So much we could say about this, but let's keep going. We fast forward in the human narrative, and God has chosen a people to be his special representatives here on earth, the 12 tribes of Israel. And he rescues them from slavery in Egypt. Before he lays out the process where they can be in right relationship with him through the law and sacrificial system, God visits them on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. And what does he do? He instructs Moses to set up barrier markers around the mountain for no one to cross. People, livestock, all the above, do not cross this barrier on pain of death. Why? For the sake of God's holiness and their protection. Then he gives them the law and the sacrificial system, all of which points to something and someone greater to come. Humanity can once again have access to God's presence through the law and the sacrificial system, but it's severely restricted. Alex preached on this about a month ago. Told you I had a shout out for you. Both the tabernacle and the, the temple built by King Solomon had similar layouts. And these layouts had extensive barriers restricting access to God's presence based on the person's status. On the outermost fringe, way in the back, back row, was the court of the Gentiles, which surrounded the temple but was as close as any non-Jew could approach God. A low wall separated the court of the Gentiles from the next area, a court reserved for Israelite women. Hebrew women could approach God closer than any non-Jew, but they were still pretty far off. Next came the court of Jewish men called the court of Israel, still closer, but not as close as the priesthood of Levites who could enter the priest's court. As close as the priests were, they still could not enter God's presence within the Holy of Holies, a place only the high priest could enter once a year for the atoning sacrifice. Each of these courts contained barriers, the final barrier being the curtain into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. These barriers kept people out, but also kept people safe from entering into God's presence in an unworthy manner, resulting in death. Kind of important. You cannot read the Old Testament and, and, and not pick up on all of these barriers and restrictions that entered the story because of sin. Barriers that did not exist in Genesis chapter 2 when God created. All right, so this has been a super long intro. But context is key. If we don't understand and embrace the context of the human condition, we cannot understand or embrace the good news of the gospel in a transformative way and respond accordingly, which is the main point of this message. Jesus definitively removed the barrier between God and man. How then should we respond? Our text today continues through our study of Hebrews a letter written to Jewish Christians who were being persecuted for their faith and tempted to reject their faith and return to Judaism because it was an approved religion. They didn't need the extensive context of the Old Testament because they lived it prior to Christ. But we do. 
That's why it's important. Follow along with me in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. We're going to read our text for this morning. If you do not have a Bible, there's one under your seat. It's blue. And in that Bible, it's page 1,109. If you do not own a Bible, please take that home with you. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. The writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that's holy of holies, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For several chapters, the author has presented evidence of Jesus being the great and final high priest. Derek mentioned it again this past Sunday from earlier in chapter 10. The author is once again reminding his readers what Jesus accomplished, building up to a response from the believers. So what did Jesus accomplish? Well, he became the way to access God's presence. How did he do this? By removing the barriers. Verse 20 calls this the new way, meaning there was an old way which has now been replaced. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul wrote, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't go back to the sacrificial system. The old way. Your old self. That's pretty much the entire point of the book of Hebrews. The law pointed to the need for something and someone greater. And it required people to bring sacrifices to God to die in their place. But it could never actually take away their sins. Again, Derek covered this last week from Hebrews 10 verse 4, which says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That sin barrier between them and God, still remained. The Israelites couldn't go behind the curtain no matter how perfect and spotless the lamb or bull or goat. Even the high priest could only go behind it once per year. But Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, provided a new way through the curtain, through the tearing of his flesh, ripping the curtain from top to bottom. And by doing so, did away with the old. No more offering sacrifices to God for sin because that was the old way. So get this. You have nothing to offer God other than Christ in you. Not your piety. Not your works. Not your service. Not, not your service. Not your sacrifices. Only the new way. Christ manifested in your life. Without Christ removing the sin barrier and you bending your knee to King Jesus, you remain separated from God's holiness 
and his presence. Without his seal upon your heart, the new way, you will be denied access to the Father. Verse 20 also calls this new way the living way, which means it is permanently available instead of just once a year by one Levitical priest. Here's your next note. The old way was via death, but the new way is via life, which is why a true belief in Christ must fundamentally include his resurrection and our promised resurrection. In John 14, Jesus comforts his disciples before his imminent arrest, and he tells them not to lose heart because he's going to the Father to prepare a place for them in heaven, and they will come later. Thomas, one of his disciples, says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Then Jesus said to him in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then Jesus continues by saying he is the living access to the Father because he and the Father are one. We then live out this living way through our sanctification journey as we daily offer ourselves to Jesus as a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You don't need to slaughter any more bulls, sheep, and goats. Jesus wants you. Your praise, your adoration, your faithfulness, your priorities, your commitments, your desires, and your motivations. A living, breathing you for as long as you walk this earth and for eternity after. So what else did Jesus accomplish? What, what other barriers did he remove? From our text, verse 22 says, we now have access to God because of clean hearts and clean consciences. Again, Derek mentioned this last week. The same language is used here with the sprinkling not of sacrificial goat's blood on the altar, but of the eternal and sufficient blood of Christ that washes away sin like nothing else can. So a clean heart and conscience. Why is this important? Wow, that's a good question. Thanks for asking. Quite simply, here's your next note, because we humans are filthy, disgusting, evil creatures who are hopelessly incapable of changing our sick hearts, our sin natures. Now, this reality flies in the face of popular belief that people are basically good. We're not. That we can, through our own efforts, be good without God. We can't. Because what's wrong with all of us is our nature and defines who we are apart from Christ. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. That means greater than Satan's deception, which means we can't blame him. Let me read that again. The heart is deceitful above all things. 
and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, it might seem like I'm beating up on humanity, but this reality comes from God's perfect word. Do not be deceived. Any attempts to change or transform your sick heart apart from the blood of Christ will produce only self-righteousness. And this will not grant you access to the Father. In Psalm 51, King David proclaims this truth through a desperate, heart-wrenching prayer after being called out for his adultery and murderous schemes. He writes, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Later in verse 10 of the same psalm, he acknowledges the only source for transformation as he pleads to God. You, God, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Through the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 36, verse 25, God makes the following promise to Israel and by extension, those who would belong to Christ in the future. God says this, check this out. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness. And from all, the, uh, all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you because, and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all my rules. Who's doing all that work? You cannot create a clean heart and a clean conscience. That's the divine work of the Holy Spirit in you when you are made right with God by declaring Jesus is Lord. Only the Spirit can do this, this transformative work, because let me go ahead and beat this dead horse. Your greatest barrier is yourself. Not your circumstance not your past, you. True transformation begins with the Spirit and includes acknowledging you are now responsible for partnering with the Spirit to grow that clean heart, to grow that clean conscience through your sanctification journey. Well, how do we do this? We do this by embracing God's forgiveness, by practice. Practicing living on the other side of that forgiveness, like Derek mentioned last week. And by choosing to walk by the Spirit rather than the flesh. So what did Jesus accomplish? A new way, a living way, heart transformation. Paul, the apostle, describes what Jesus accomplished perfectly in Ephesians 2. And I encourage you to read it. But I'm just going to sum it up here. Paul says... Jesus preached to those who were far off, back row, Jews, I mean Gentiles, uh, Jewish women, and to those who were near, who thought they were close to God, the priests. He, he preached peace to both groups of people because there are no more barriers based on status. No more barriers, period. 
Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him, through Christ, we both, meaning Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, rich or poor, men or women, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So what does this mean? It means Jesus is inviting you behind the curtain. This isn't just a big deal. It's the whole deal. Because of sin, all of humanity experiences the barrier between us and God. But Jesus provides a new way, a living way, a heart surgery only God can perform for those who will call upon his name. I was trying to think about what, under what context might we understand the magnitude of this, perhaps in the same way that the first century readers felt, as they recalled all of these barriers that they experienced while they were practicing Judaism. What might be a close approximation for us? And this is what I came up with. It was November 9th, 1989, a day before my 10th birthday. Most 10-year-olds aren't terribly concerned with geopolitics, but I'm a weirdo, and I grew up with a slightly different perspective, having lived almost my entire childhood overseas. Plus, these events occurred where my family had, extended family had once lived. So this left a permanent imprint for me. At a press conference on the 9th of November, East German spokesman Gunter Schabowski announced that East Germans would be free to travel into West Germany without restrictions, effective immediately. For almost 30 years, a 100-mile-long wall cut Berlin in half, separating the free democracy of West Germany from the communist-ruled East Germany, a barrier designed to keep East Germans from fleeing into the freedom of the West, separating families, communities, and, and threatening people with imprisonment or death if they tried to cross. This was the preeminent battlefield of the Cold War. One side experienced economic freedom, free elections, modern conveniences. The other, fear, oppression, poverty, suspicion. Though the wall stood between 1961 and 1989, it could not survive a massive democratic movement that ended up bringing down the communist East German government. Listen to these, excerpt, these excerpts from articles the days following this momentous event. The extraordinary announcement represents the single most dramatic transformation of the po political map of post-war Europe. That's World War II, for those who are confused. East German television carried the announcement. When East German television carried the announcement, the station's switchboard was jammed almost immediately as thousands of callers tried to elicit more information. Hundreds of youth that night clamored up to dance atop the Berlin Wall near the most potent symbol of the divided Germanys, the Brandenburg Gate. West Germans, free Germans carrying hammers, rushed towards the wall to start chipping away at it. Open the gate, open the gate, the East Berliners shouted as the gatherings grew with the news that the border would be opened. They crossed the border with incredible joy, amazement, tears, and good humor. They sang and sparkled above, below, and beside the Berlin Wall. It was one of those very rare, absolutely electrifying moments when the ordinary lay people take over, 
and all the professionals get quietly out of the way. The following weekend, two million East Germans invaded West Germany, making history with a good day out of picnicking, shopping, and sightseeing. Thousands returned east through the autumn dusk and the bottlenecked checkpoints on foot or in cars. Tempers frayed a little, their babies starting to cry, but visibly glowing with joy nonetheless. A Trabant had broken down. Trabant's a janky East German car. Super janky. A Trabant had broken down and needed a push, complete with husband, wife, grandmother, and two children sporting brand new fluffy toy monkeys. I think it's the battery, said the husband, but no matter, it's the best day of our lives. An elderly East Berliner, eyes wide with wonder as he crossed through an unguarded border crossing, sported a large white pin on his beret. Ich bin frei. I am free. Your whole life, barriers, barriers, barriers. What would it be like if they were removed? How then would you respond? How then should you respond? Our text reveals an unambiguous cause and effect. If Jesus provided us with a new way, a living way, a transformed heart, then the evidence will be clear as we embrace the five lettuce statements in this passage that we cannot ignore because they hold us accountable and reveal the authenticity of that transformation. Don't forget the lettuce. You guys were wondering about that title, weren't you? It's okay. First lettuce. I know, I'm cracking up inside too. First lettuce. Since Jesus has removed the barriers, let us run to God. Let us run to God. Verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Because of Jesus, be fully convinced of the invitation to go beyond the curtain. Be fully convinced that Jesus accomplished the permanent removal of your sins and makes you perfect, complete, presentable to God. Be fully convinced that God has placed his spirit in your heart. Only a heart that has embraced God's forgiveness and rejected the fear and shame that comes from our continued struggle with sin will even want to draw near to God. We do this together as the body of Christ, knowing none of us did anything to deserve it. For those who are far off or feel like they're far off, For those who are near, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We do this together knowing that unlike the high priest, when we look around, we see others there with us who have accepted the invitation to go behind the curtain. So let's run there together. Second lettuce. Internal chuckling every time. Since Jesus has removed the barriers, let us stop trying to sew the curtain back up. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised 
is faithful. What's the promise? That Jesus cleanses us from our sins and provides a way to God. Our hope is not in our good works. It's not in our spiritual habits. Not in our service to others. Or in anything that we think we bring to the table. Our hope is in Jesus. His death and resurrection and eventual return. That's the hope we desperately cling to. The hope we confess to those around us when life is falling apart and when we're thriving. The moment you start hoping in anything else, be it your own strength, others, the government, financial security, you've started to drift like the warning we got back in chapter 2. Hoping in anything other than Christ is the same as you trying to patch up the curtain. Don't do it. Third, let us. Since Jesus has removed the barriers, let us consider, sorry, let us recognize our motivation is to lead others towards godliness. Verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. A blatant call to disciple others. The phrase stir up actually has a much more fun and aggressive meaning in Greek. and implies provoking, goading, coaxing. It means rocking the boat, being intentional, constantly asking the question to ourselves and to others, is this the loving thing to do or say? A transformed heart will be motivated by love, as it says in 1 Timothy 1.5. And godly love cannot be contained, but must be shared, demonstrated, and a little provocative, because it can be super uncomfortable at first. The more we demonstrate real love, the more natural it will become. Disciples of Jesus Christ never stop looking to help others get off the bench and into the sanctification journey. Fourth, let us. Since Jesus has removed the barriers, let us embrace our unity as the body of Christ. Verse 25 contains another one of the warnings in this letter that uh, Derek hinted at last week. The warning is, let us not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. If the third lettuce is a call to disciple others, this one is a call to be discipled. The heart struggling with fear, regret, and shame will isolate, will avoid exposing blind spots to those who can speak the truth in love, will put up barriers for self-protection, that actually accomplish the opposite. This heart might also be struggling with pride, believing that he or she can do this alone without the mutual, mutual edification described in Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 12, literally dozens of other passages. How can you receive encouragement in your faith if you're avoiding those who have it to give? This goes well beyond the rather modern notion of coming to a church service once a week. That's, that's pretty modern. But instead points to a life and a lifestyle prioritizing the gathering together with other believers for, for discipleship, for the sharing of burdens, and for building up together in Christ. Since we've already established that your greatest barrier is yourself, don't be foolish enough to think that you can figure this out alone. 
All right, last one. Fifth lettuce. A whole bunch of lettuce. Since Jesus has removed the barriers, let us seize the opportunities we have left. We do all these things all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the lettuce, the whole head, stands upon this fundamental truth. There's nothing left for Jesus to do but return. Think about that for a second. There's nothing left for Jesus to do but return. He's already done it all. Does your life reflect this reality? Are you waiting for Jesus, anticipating his return, capitalizing on your chances to grow in Christ, to share your hope with those around you, to build up the next generation of believers, to invite someone to church or your small group? When will you stop procrastinating as Derek challenged us last week? Whether your own death or Jesus' imminent return, you don't know how long you'll still be here. You are running out of time. We all are. David declared in Psalm 39, verses 4 through 6, that will be up on the screen. He says, O Lord, help me understand my mortality and the brevity of life. Let me realize how quickly my life will pass. Look, you make my days short-lived and my lifespan is nothing from your perspective. Surely all people, even those who seem secure, are nothing but vapor. James, in chapter 4, verse 13 through 17, echoes this sentiment when he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a trade and a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. What's that arrogance? I got plenty of time. I'm strong. I'm healthy. I'm secure. I got plenty of time. All such boasting is evil. Verse 16. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Whew, that's some heavy stuff. So what are we waiting for? What are we anticipating? How can we be ready? The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, now concerning the times and the seasons for when Christ returns. He says, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light. Sure hope so. Children of the day. We are not of the night or in the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us wake, keep awake, and be sober. Jesus is returning, and our days are numbered. Are you making the best use of your time, as it says in Ephesians 
redeeming the time that you have left. This needs to shape our, our, our perspectives, our priorities, our sense of urgency. So I will close by asking, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, does your life resemble these let us statements? Have you accepted Jesus' invitation to go behind the curtain? What barriers in you continue to hold you back? And can you proclaim in full assurance of faith, ich bin frei. I have a couple of next step challenges for you. I think they're in the bulletin. I would challenge you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal remaining barriers you have in your heart that prevent you from living as though Jesus could return at any moment. Share this with somebody, somebody who loves God and can hold you accountable. I also challenge you to demonstrate the love of God in your life by identifying someone you can stir up this week and then do it. This morning, we have uh, the privilege of praying for the Carter family. They are leaving for Guinea on Thursday in obedience to pretty much everything that we just said, to partner with our missionary partner in the region to help remove barriers, access to the Father. So I'm going to invite them up here to pray, and at the end of the prayer, I'm going to be by the double doors. If, if you want somebody to pray with you or if you have more questions as to how you can be free to go behind the curtain, uh, I would encourage you to come to me. Uh, this is the Carter family. You've probably seen their postcard, hopefully, um, in the uh, info table. Uh, Joel, Amy, Izzy, and Zuzu uh, are going to spend about 10 days both on the ground as well as traveling to Guinea, uh, again, partnering with our missionary partner there um, to get this, this good news to more people. So we're going to pray for them uh, here in a second. Um, but I would challenge you, I would ask you, I would invite you to be continuing in prayer for them throughout this, this next couple of weeks. Uh, the travel is pretty arduous, um, time change and making flights, and it's pretty hard on the body. But more importantly, that the hearts of those that they encounter, that the Holy Spirit has already begun removing those barriers. That's what we want to see. We want to see lives transformed here, there, and everywhere. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for the opportunity to be a part of your mission in reaching the lost with the good news of Jesus Christ, in helping people remove the barriers that keep them from knowing who you are, be, be it access to Scripture, be it being the good news that the, the feet of the that bring the good news to places it's never heard before. Father, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on the people of Guinea, that hearts would be ready and receptive. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on the Carter family, that their lives would be forever transformed as they participate, as they come alongside your spirit already at work on the ground there. Lord, we pray that you would watch over them, that you would, that you would guard them, that you would hold them close to you. Lord, I pray that the travel would be smooth, that they would have strength and energy to, to be a part of what you are doing there and see your kingdom grow. 
God, I pray that our church would, would continue to pray for them and with them in this endeavor because it's not, it's not a, a Carter family team. This is, this is our church. These are our brothers and sisters. Father, we love them, we love you, and we anticipate hearing great things that you have done in and through them and in whatever you plan to do in Guinea, Lord. We submit all this to your sufficient and powerful name. Amen.